Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Fandi, good to have you on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, I really would love to share your story because you know we had a great conversation about Indonesia startups and bootstrapping the last time around, and I think this would be a great conversation for everybody to hear and learn from you. Yeah, hopefully so. So, for those who don't know you yet, how would you introduce yourself? My name is Fandi. I'm from Indonesia. I now am based in Jakarta. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Gila Discon. Where we have the biggest community of shoppers in Indonesia, and we help them to save money every day. And also at the same time, we're helping retailers to drive transactions and customers at a very low cost, sustainably. That's basically it. Great. How did you ever get started into business and entrepreneurship? Okay, so it was back in 2013. So I was working in a bank for several years at the time. And my brother, who is based in Germany, he has an IT consulting company. He said, "Hey, why don't we try to set up something in Indonesia, and let's do something together?" So that's how it started as selling enterprise software, SaaS. But back in the days, there wasn't any other SaaS, so it wasn't working that that great. But that's how I started my own business back in 2013. Awesome. And why? Did you want to do it? Is this because you're bored at work? <laughs> Why exactly did you want to go into get into it? I don't know. I've been wanting to have my own business for a while before that, but I didn't really have any idea what to start and how to start. So I think when my brother came with the idea, I think, hey, what's there to lose? I talked to my boss at the time in the bank, and he said, hey, Fandi, you're still young. So worst case scenario, if your business is not running too well, you can always find another job in a bank. Used to have value in terms of like as an employee, so you can still look for another job as a as a second chance, as a plan B if things don't work out. So I thought, what could go wrong? So I just I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, at that time, I totally get it because when I was. Setting up businesses, I always thought to myself, "What can go wrong?" And <laughs> now that I've actually built a business, I know a lot of things can go wrong. <laughs> exactly, almost everything can go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you build a business because you had no idea what could go wrong, which you discovered a lot of things can go wrong. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So what was it like building the first business of your brother? It was tiring. At the same time, I learned a lot because I took marketing major in college. So I have no IT or technology background whatsoever, like nothing. And my first company, we were selling enterprise software. So when I was talking to the IT team of my prospects, I didn't even have a clue. I didn't have any difference between database and a server at a time. I understood nothing. It was very tough, especially in the beginnings in the in the early months. But as things started to move, it became much clearer. Even though it didn't became easier, but some things I learned it the hard way. I had to learn IT kind of terms, those technology kind of terms and things, because if I don't, I wouldn't survive. 
I cannot sell technology product without knowing the technology in the first place. So yeah, it was, it was fun, but it was very tough. During that time, what did you learn? So you learned it was tough, and you learned how to use technology and all these technology terms. But what did you learn about being a founder of a business in your first business? I think there are a couple of things that I learned at the time. One is that as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, really the result that you can get depends entirely on your own effort, on the amount of time, the amount of effort that you put into the business. So I strongly believe that if we have a side business, then don't be surprised if we're getting a side kind of income. If we want to get like a full-time kind of income, then you better be full-time on the company too. That's number one. And number two is that when I started the business, it was just me, myself, in Jakarta. And I had to do uh, product uh, development and at the same time doing sales. And I figured out that we cannot really do that just by one person at the same time because you cannot develop the product when you're selling things and you cannot selling things when you're developing the product because you're getting more and more feedback from the prospects. But at the same time, okay, after you're getting the feedback, you review it and then you redevelop, like, you know, put it put the feedbacks into the development of the product, but at the same time, you still need to sell the, the product. So it was, it was very hard. So that's why my first hire was an IT consultant, so I could take care of the selling side more, because that's, that's where my strength is more towards, uh, rather than the IT, and then things started moving on after that. Amazing. And what's interesting is that after that, you left and you built out your next business and another business. So can you tell us more about your next business? Actually, I didn't leave the company. The company is still running until today. That company evolved into something else. So instead of selling a product to the company, we changed our first company to become an, like a technology outsourcing company. So where we provide the consultants here in Jakarta, but we're getting projects from Europe. So we just basically flip the sequence because on the early days of my first company, basically my, my brother in Germany, he already has his own team and his own company in Germany. So the way it worked was that we were building the, the product in Germany with a much higher wage, but we're selling the product in Jakarta. And that doesn't really make sense because the development cost is so much higher than the selling price. So that's why after a couple of years, we just came to an, this aha moment when I was talking to my brother. Why don't we try flip it instead of building the product in Germany and selling it in Jakarta? Why don't we do it the other way around where we build the product in Jakarta where the wage is much cheaper and then sell the product in Germany? After we did that, it suddenly took off, which is nice. So I have that. I got a new partner here in Jakarta. And with that new partner, I built other companies. But the first company is still there, still running today. Amazing. What a savvy move on your part. There you are, and then you, you decide to move on to your next company after that. Can you tell us more about it? The next thing that I built, well, there are a couple of things actually at the same time at the time. That was back in 2015. Besides continuing the uh, outsourcing company, I built uh, an online cashback company similar to Shopback. I think many people are aware of. So it's called Hadia.me. It's the first online cashback company in Indonesia. And we did that for three years before we closed it down because we could not compete with Shopback, basically. And at the same time, I was also leading another team in my partner's company to sell another SaaS application to enterprise, to like banks and e-commerce. The software itself is related to like, you know, sending emails, SMS, push notifications, those kind of integrations. 
So yeah, I was juggling among several things. What was it like to be juggling all these things? Well, it's not easy. And it's actually, uh, if I look back, it's probably not really recommended because we can only have so much attention. We can only have so much focus on something. So if we divide our focus into several big things, then the result may not be as uh, optimal as we want it to be because we're only giving it, say, I divided uh, my focus into three separate uh, companies. So basically, each one has a third of my focus. So if I look back, I'm, I'm not surprised anymore if I'm only getting a third of the result that I was expecting. It's not really uh, a good uh, thing to do. So that's, I guess, a learning experience for me. Yeah, that's so true. Because I think we all think that we're able to do multiple things. Did you feel like you could do that because you had already successfully built a business before, so you felt like you could juggle more stuff? Or was it because no. you felt like you had to do these different things? Yeah. No, not really. I, I didn't I didn't think of it uh, at the time and not even now. <laughs> so I, I've never thought myself to have built something successful so far. But I was really juggling it because of the circumstances, because I was helping my partner to set up this new uh, SaaS company in, in Jakarta. So I was helping him. Hadia.me was, it was me who started it myself. And I was helping to run the existing company. But thankfully, the outsourcing company, which is my first business, is pretty much, it runs by itself. So I don't really need to spend much time on that. I juggled among the things because... It's more because I had to at the time. Hmm, interesting. What's interesting is so you started focusing very much on online shopping, e-commerce during this time frame as well. So what was drawing you to this new vertical? Well, my background is from marketing. And also my partner, he has a big group uh, also in marketing space. He has one of the leading marketing research company. So that's why when we were discussing about, okay, what to build next? So we were thinking about something that has to do with marketing. And one of the key strengths of my partner is about loyalty program. But we thought that loyalty program is probably not as popular as before. So why don't we think of something that it's more similar towards the model, but something more relevant to the current time. And we thought that online cashback was something interesting that we could look into because when we started it, there was no one else. That did that. So, and ShopBank was already present in Singapore and Malaysia, I think, for like a year, but they haven't really started marketing in Indonesia. So, that's pretty much how we started it. So, you were doing this in the midst of what I was calling the e commerce platform boom for Indonesia. So, what was it like back then? It was really good. Actually, our second or yeah, our second year running Hadiyarotmi, we were delivering like $30 million of GMV. And we were only like a team of, I don't know, less than 10 people. We don't do marketing. We don't do advertising at all. It's all organic. But we were delivering like 30 million GMV. That's just because of the hype, the boom. But as things progresses, the e-commerce also became more mature. And they, they established new procedures, new rules with the partners and everything. So things started to decline in, in some way because there are more rules, because they, they have more experience. For example, one thing that I remember at the time was Tokopedia. I think that was the first time they did the free shipping campaign. It exploded so much that they lost a lot of money because a lot of people fraudulently used the campaign for personal benefits. Like free shipping, no limit, no terms and conditions whatsoever. So what people did was say, you want to 
you, you're moving from the island of Java to the island of Papua, which is the most eastern part of Indonesia. So when you're moving furniture from Java to Papua, it's going to cost a lot of money. But hey, this Tokopedia is having free shipping campaign without any terms. So they're basically selling product to themselves from Java to Papua and get the free shipping from Tokopedia. Because of those kind of experience, the e-commerce started to learn and put in more and more boundaries and even more today. But that also affects the way we can operate with them. Interesting. And it was interesting because we saw so many people start learning how to use or get on e-commerce. Do you have any funny stories from people you saw or users about how they were learning how to get or use e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, mm, I cannot recall any like interesting stories, but I mean, we got a lot of inquiries regarding like how to actually use it. Because for Indonesian audience, a lot of times is that people don't like to read. I don't know if it's different with uh, Singapore and Malaysia, but Indonesia in general, a lot of people don't like to read. So when we're posting something like with the how-tos and everything, people just don't read. So they prefer to WhatsApp us or they would send us an email or like you know SMS or anything and ask us how to do it instead of just reading the like you know one, two, three steps that we already provided in the websites. But yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> That's actually an interesting story because I imagine you getting quite frustrated because there's a lot of routine questions you get asked, right? Oh yeah, so much, yeah. So you, there you were, you said you're doing lots of GMP, etc. And then you started noticing that things were starting to slow down for a process. So how was the team and you thinking about how to solve that problem back then? Actually, um, we were thinking about that, how to solve this. It's a bit difficult for us because the way online cashback model works is that we're really at the mercy of the e-commerce because the premise is that we're delivering customers to the e-commerce and then they're making the purchase in the e-commerce. They're paying the products in the e-commerce and the e-commerce have all the data, all the shipping information, all the payment information and everything. And they have the freedom to either approve or reject any transactions that we bring to them and they can set the commission rate. So everything is basically on their side. So we, we bear all the risk in, in this transaction. That's why we thought, we discussed internally with my team, we thought to ourselves, I wouldn't want to be in this kind of business for a long time because the results of our hard work may not be rewarded because of things outside of our control. Because say we, we manage to like increase our conversion rate, increase our traffic and everything, but at the end, they simply change one point of their rules and they can just reject 50% of our, our transactions. And that can wipe out our GMV and commission and revenue, therefore. So that's why we thought we need to do something else. We need to make our own product where we're, we don't depend ourselves in someone else. Because if we have that kind of circumstances, it's, it's a bit hard because, like I said before, we may work as hard as we can, but we may not get anything or enough reward for that. It's being controlled by someone else too much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you're basically building something that's an, an extension or like a, you're powering and you're benefiting from the platforms, but these platforms honestly can throw you off by either closing the, the transactions yeah. in terms of regulations or they can just uh, copy you, right? Yeah. So I, you know, I kind of know where the story goes, but what did your team figure out on this one? So that's why we started a different thing, which is Gila Discon, which is our own company, our current company right now. So we launched uh, our own product in the form of subscription model. 
So we launched this back in 2019, April 2019, where the product itself is an annual subscription where our users, our members, can enjoy unlimited amount of vouchers from our uh, merchant partners in Indonesia. So that's our definition of having our own product because that way we, we can decide our own future in a way because we can set our own price. We can like you know manage our own conversion. We don't need uh, anyone's approval for that. All we need to do is just generating the traffic and also uh, acquiring the merchants and we can get the results ourselves. So that's that's actually the result of that discussion of the of the, or the issue. And what's been interesting, of course, is that as you build it out yourself, you're building out this community and platform. What were some things you learned about building out this your own community? Because yes, this you know own users who are really coming for you and your brand rather than for someone else. So what was that learning process like? To be honest, in Indonesia, I don't know again in other countries, but in Indonesia. Brand loyalty is pretty much non-existent because uh, customers prefer like cheaper price or bigger discounts rather than like a certain brand or certain e-commerce. So most of the times what we would do is we always do some kind of experiments because with that kind of mindset from the customers where they're not loyal to any brand, we need to figure out how to make them stay in our platform. So the way we did this is that by offering like deals in terms of cheaper annual subscription for premium members. And also we acquire merchants who we think that our members would like to have. Yeah, that's that's the most things that we did. But we did a lot of experiments, either in the minor details or also on the, on the bigger scale. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And how does your team work for experiment? How do you, do you work on a like weekly sprint, monthly? How do you think about experimentation from an internal perspective? We did uh, sprints before, but nowadays we don't do it like, you know, too formally. But during our weekly team meeting, I would ask to each of my team members, like, you know, what experiments have you done in the past week? And what are you guys planning to test on the following week? And also on monthly basis, we also have a meeting with everyone in the company like, you know, to gather new ideas overall, what we can do in the future, what we can do better, or how we can make more money, like, you know, from our existing source of income, or if we can make another source of revenue, uh, a new ones or a new market. So we do that on weekly or monthly basis. We don't do it too formally, but we're trying to make it like a, a part of our culture. Here you are, and obviously you build out this business that's very focused on dining, retail, and so, so forth. And obviously COVID happened for the entire world. So, you know, could you share about how your team kind of reacted and adapted to the pandemic and what you saw? Okay, so since most of our clients and partners revolves around FNBs, we got hit pretty bad. So on the month of March, April, May, and June, it was things was very rough. So the way we adapted to such conditions is that uh, several things. The first one is, like many other companies, we have pay cuts for everyone because we committed to our team members that we are trying our best not to let go of anyone. But if we want to do that, we need to have pay cut together. So, so we're doing it together. That's number one. And number two, we actually enforce the experiments even more uh, since pandemic happens. And this is not only on the minor details, but also on a major level where we're trying to build, like, you know, we experimented with new business models. So, for example, we tried copying slick deals kind of models in the, in the U.S. 
we were trying to copy it in Indonesia, but it didn't really work. Well, we, we did that for a couple of months, but we saw that the traction was not really there. So that's why we dropped it. We also tried selling groceries ourselves. I think a lot of companies also, also tried that, uh, pivoted to that, selling groceries online. We also tried several other things, but we really enforced the focus to experiment on new things even more uh, after the pandemic. But obviously the, the team... Well, we were a bit uh, anxious at the time, but now we're getting better. Actually, our pay cut is getting lower and lower, and hopefully we can get to like you know full amount again uh, soon, sometime soon. What was it like for you and all the founders? I mean, because, you know, I guess it sounds like a documentary now, but, you know, going through the pandemic, do you remember what was it like going through like the lockdowns and... I don't know, the communications between founders and yourself about and the team about how to adapt and evolve to the pandemic? Our office is one big thing because our office lease actually expired on June 2020. So at the time, we already make some down payments to a new space in a co-working space in Jakarta, a nice one, which I was really looking forward to. We paid like several months up, up front, but then the pandemic happens. So the, our existing office at the time runs out on June. And then since we cannot continue with a new office that we have paid up front because we could no longer af- afford to pay that kind of rent with our current revenue level because of the pandemic, it dropped significantly. So we could no longer afford that. So that's why we decided to scrap that altogether. So everyone started to work uh, from home back in, I think, April last year. So it's been more than a year. To be honest, my team was not really surprised. They're actually a bit happy about it because some of them who have children already, they can they can spend time with their children all day long while still doing their work. We did some minor adjustments in terms of communications, in terms of the frequency of the meetings, how we do the meetings. And we would do like monthly sync up calls with all the company members on a monthly basis, online. We did some some new things, but majority-wise, there wasn't that much to be adapted, to be honest, in terms of communication. When you think about that, how did you manage your own stress and your own personal dynamic? Because there you are, you're leading the team to change, you're negotiating the lease and the place and you're doing experiments. How does a founder take care of himself? Any advice? Having a discussion partner really, really helps. For me, fortunately, there are two of us, so me and Steven. So Steven is my partner, uh, the CTO of the company. And Steven is actually my college friend, which I knew already from back in 2004. So we've known each other for quite some time. By having him, I can always give him a call if there's anything that I want to discuss about like, anything, about the lease, about about how we communicate with the team, about the, like, the dropping revenue, what should we do, blah, blah, blah. And uh, based on my own personal experience, when I was running my first business, when there was no one to talk to, that was a much, much tougher situation. So I think that having a discussion partner, be it your, your own partner or like, you know, a community of founders that probably he has, like, for example, I have this community of Alibaba e-founders, which I'm a part of. So that also helps because we have this WhatsApp group which sometimes we talk about things. Sometimes we also do an online meetup to talk about things. We can share about what we're struggling with and everything. I think that that helps because entrepreneurs kind of a solitary journey. 
Sometimes we cannot even talk to our spouse because they don't really have the same passion as ours, obviously. So we cannot really talk about business really in detail with a lot of people. So I think having that kind of people around us is really important. What topics would you recommend people to be talking about if you're a discussion partner, whoever they are? And who is this discussion partner as well, I guess? <laughs> yeah, it, it can be. It can be. Anything, to be honest, it could be the challenges. Obviously, you cannot just talk about this with anyone. It has to be someone that you really trust. Sometimes, probably your mentor, someone that you look up to. So it can be your mentor. It can be your actual business partner. It can be like you know some friends who have their own business, or even better if they have like a circle of founders that they have. That's I think the best case scenario because we can share about things in our company, and then they can share things about what happens in their company. And we can get some ideas from them, and they can get ideas from us, and that kind of thing. The topic it can be of anything. We can even talk about we're stressed about something. What should we do? If you guys have that kind of friend, that is really helpful. So one of the friend groups I know that you're part of is the Alibaba E Founder Fellow Group, right? Yes. Can you tell us more about how you joined this group and what was the experience like? I was part of batch two, the first from Southeast Asia back in 2018. I was referenced to by my friend to register and participate in the in the program. We spent three weeks, two to three weeks in Alibaba uh, in Hangzhou. We became friends with a lot of founders, especially those in uh, Indonesia and like you know Singapore and Malaysia. We tried to support each other when someone came to town. We tried to set aside some time to to have dinner with them and talk. Just have fun in general, but uh, it's also a place where I can also ask questions regarding businesses, like you know what what we're facing in business. Practical questions, so for example, hey, you guys know I never hired another executive level person before. You guys have any tips for that or anything? Basically, anything because some of them have much much bigger business than mine, so they have a different set of experience. So I can always ask them about that, but. We don't meet that often these days, but uh, like you know, the WhatsApp group is always alive, and we can talk about anything there. Any fun memories from this trip and community? Well, karaoke and everything, like you know, uh, it's a bit wild when we were in Hangzhou, but it was it was fun, and I think the friends that we made in the community is really really high quality kind of friends. We can support each other and we can connect to each other, do partnerships. We do that all the time, so. Sometimes people who are from Malaysia who wants to enter Indonesian market, they can ask about the Indonesian market to the Indonesian founders and vice versa. So things happen between the founders through the community. Awesome. Well, everybody loves karaoke, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Fandi, you know what's interesting is that obviously you've gone through quite a few interesting tough times, pivots, and transitions. So I was just wondering if you could share with us a time when you had to be brave. Yeah, I think there are two moments. One is to start my first business because at the time I was married for several months, not even a year. Married, I had to consider about the future of my family, about like you know having kids and everything, and by having unstable income. So what should we do? What should we plan? But thankfully, my wife is uh, working full time, so at least one of us is earning. Like in a stable kind of income, so at least if things go wrong from my side, we still have some things from from my wife's side. So I think deciding to jump to start our first business is one of the moment that I recall to require bravery. Number two is to 
close down something because I think we all have egos. It's it's never easy to admit that what we're building is not working and we have to close it down and we need to move on. And it took me some time because there were several businesses uh, small in smaller scale, which I started also with my partner during the time that didn't work out, which we have spent quite amount of money. We invested in several people and like events, sponsorships and everything, but things didn't work out at the end. So we had to scrap it and just, just move on. And I think that also requires bravery to admit that this is not working, but we cannot dwell in this forever. We need to move on to something new and then like start it immediately. I think those are the two moments I recall. Wow. I'm glad that your wife has been supportive yes, for yes. your transition. Really thankfully for that, yeah. I know. I think my wife has also been very supportive uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> through my two startups and has been very patient with me and my ideas. Yes, yes. And one interesting I would like to ask you is like, you know, you talk about being able to close something down. There's something that's a really tough process for a lot of founders, right? Because it's hard to tell the difference between, oh, I'm not trying hard enough right. versus if I try hard enough, this is going to change to... This is a bad idea, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So how do you suggest people should think about that? I think we just need to be realistic with ourselves. In some cases, exactly like you said, it's never easy to really decide whether things are not working because we're not working hard enough or because we need to pivot it to something else or because it's just a dumb idea. It's hard to decide that. But at the end of the day, I think we need to decide realistically whether... Can we see this happening? Can we see this thing running in the next three, five, ten years? If we have this fuzzy and blurry pictures about it, then it's probably time to at least pivot. At least pivot. If we've tried everything we can with this, with the with the new pivots and everything, if it's still not working out, then it's probably time to close down shop. Because I think one thing, one factor that may lead to company closing down simply as time. Because sometimes we are ahead of the time. We're building something that people don't need yet. People may need it in in the next 5-10 years, but people don't need it now. And therefore, it's not selling well, it's not working out, and we need to close it down. But we need to be realistic with ourselves. Being realistic, that's tough, right? It is. It sucks, right? Yeah. Have you ever been that person for someone about being realistic? Or how do you help them be realistic, I guess. Or, or what's the process? Because you know, sometimes as founders, we're always like hanging out with other people, right? It's not just about whether it's our business, right? But also we're brainstorming new ideas, new experiments. How do you be a friend, I guess, and be realistic as well? Okay, for me, I think there are two things. The first one is how much have we tried to pivot these things? How often do we experiment new things on this business? Have we tried changing the product slightly? Or have we tried probably reaching a slightly different market? Or we probably change the pricing? Or like, you know, I don't know. If it's a physical product, have we changed the packaging? Or the way we market the product? Have we changed many, many times with this product? If we have, then the second thing that we need to consider is that Our personal circumstances, do we have the time to really spend more on this product? If we say we're single, we're still on our early 20s, we don't have anything else to do, basically. 
probably we can give it another shot, another two, three, four, five years, probably. But if we're already in mid thirties or like late thirties, early forties, we have kids already. Uh, like you know, things are not working out. Probably we have uh, less of a time limit. So I think I would think about it from those two perspectives. Wow, that's very realistic, and I can imagine it's a tough spot for a lot of folks to be in, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm 40 years old, and I still have lots of time, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you, you hear me say in a couple of years. Yeah, it's always never easy to admit that we're building something that's failing, right? Yeah. Never easy. Yeah, yeah. It's never easy. When it's failing, it's never, ever, ever easy when you're succeeding. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. It's hard all the way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, Vandi, thank you so much for coming to the show. I'd like to paraphrase the three big themes that I heard from you today. And thank you so much for sharing. The first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing your own professional journey from how you left banking to become a founder of your first company with your brother. And then, uh, frankly, like you didn't know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> So that's why you found it, no idea. Then you discovered it the hard way. And then you still kept going, which is very inspiring. You knew how hard it was this time around. You still kept going to build up a new business. The second part I really appreciated was you sharing, of course, what it was like tackling e-commerce in Indonesia in the early days. And I think there are so many people in Southeast Asia from Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, all discovering e-commerce at around the same time. And it was interesting to hear about the user stories they experienced and some of the challenges that your team had to make in terms of discussing about how much you want to partner, collaborate, or be independent from the major online e-commerce retailers, which was interesting. And the third thing is thank you so much, obviously, for the founder tips and advice on how to be realistic, which is a, a sucky phrase, but being realistic about what the timeline is, the resources needed, the dynamics, and how to take care of yourself and be present. Not just of being realistic about who you are as a person, but also how to be supportive as a friend and colleague and fellow founder as well. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.